Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Galatians, this morning we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, uh, communion. And to prepare for it, we have this great passage that shows us both how it is we have communion with God, but also how we have communion with one another. Uh, and, you know, for example, when we, at our church, when we celebrate communion together, we all wait and we hold on to the bread and we eat it together because it's a family meal. It's not just communing with the Lord. We're communing as a family uh, with the Lord. So join me as we read this passage. We're going to be in Galatians 2, read from verse 11 uh, down through the end of the chapter. So hear, hear the Lord. But when Cephas, and Cephas is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas' name, Barnabas, is the encourager, and so he's like the last person he would have expected to do that. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, and Christ died for nothing. You've heard from the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand what he's saying here. Father, we thank you that you love your people enough to, for them to not fall back into the, the slavery uh, that they had been in, but to give life and to give hope, and, and that, that Paul... He even wrote this harsh letter to this church. But you preserved it because you know that we're just as prone to fall into those things as they were. Uh, so help us to uh, not only see what you're saying to them, but, but see what it says to us uh, as well. Uh, so that we would taste of the joy and the freedom of your grace and your love demonstrated through what you did for us in your son Jesus. Uh, that it would set our hearts at rest. Uh, full of joy. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
For, for the next few weeks, if you were here last week, you know that uh, Tim, of course, spent time on the first part of this passage. We're, we're going to continue to drill down on this entire episode because it, it's, this whole passage gives us a real extraordinary insight into uh, how the message that Paul was preaching not only saves you, brings you into a relationship with God and connects you with him, but how it continues to transform your life. Uh, throughout the heart of what the Christian life is, is God keeps working on us and keeps changing us, and God works, keeps conforming us to the image of his son, and he's committed to that. He's not going to drop the ball. If, you, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, if you're connected with him, he will continue the work to be making you more like Jesus, and, and so Paul gives us a glimpse here of how that works. So the first thing I want to look at with look at with you this morning is how the gospel brings us into communion with God. And you see this in verses 15 and 16. Now Paul reminds Peter here, he says, look, you and I were, were, were born Jews. Okay, we, we, we lived under the assumption that if we kept the law that would make us acceptable to God, that we were, we were circumcised uh, as Babies, which would be equivalent to us, say, baptizing our children. We, were, we, we kept the Sabbath. We kept the sacrifices. We kept the feasts and the tithes. All the, and we, we stayed away from unclean things. But we knew that even though we were born into the advantage of knowing about those things and observing them, what does he say in verse 16? Yet we know that a person's not justified by the works of the law. You're not drawn near to God. It's through faith in Jesus. See, the problem with the works of the law that he talks about there is, is not the law was bad. I mean, God's, God's the one who gave the law. Okay? It's, it's his law. It's a picture of who he is. He's basically saying, be like me. The, the, the problem is the focus I'm relying on, on my works in keeping it. That's just, a, that's just a, a slippery slope, that there'll never be sufficient, my behavior, my keeping, my doing what God wants me to do, will never be sufficient to make me successful, or accept, I'm sorry, acceptable before God. And the, the false teachers who had come in, in in this area of Galatia, again, remember, Ephesians was a letter to one church in one city. Colossians was a letter to one church in one city. Galatians as a letter to several churches in a, in a group of cities. It was in an area. And after Paul had gone and evangelized and started these churches, some false teachers came in behind him. And their, their whole goal, what they, what they were saying was, Paul is kind of a junior apostle. He's kind of a second-class apostle. And what he said was, was right and nice, but it, it was inadequate. It was incomplete. He left out some of the important part that... You're saved through faith in Jesus, but you're not in, you're not acceptable to God unless you're doing all this stuff as well, unless you are circumcised, you're marked by that, unless you are keeping all these feasts and sacrifices, et cetera. And they were, they're basically thinking that to be justified, to be accepted before God was about sheer hard work, okay, that you, you toiled at it. You, you took your religion seriously. You were really committed that you fasted, you, you prayed, you, you gave alms, and, and then you'd be acceptable to God. 
And of course, the beginning was you were circumcised. Now, that was a popular religion. In fact, even today, the thing about really being committed, that same, that same mindset is really popular because it's flattering because it says you can do it. You've got the capacity to pull that off. And we like to think, yeah, I, could, I can do that. Because what it does, it focuses on the keeper of the law, which is me. And that puffs up our pride. Let's see, what's ironic is Paul's issue right here is, is not that he's calling them to repent of their sin. He says, you need to repent of your good works. Your biggest problem in your sin, not that it's not, your sin is a problem with God, but Paul's saying, for you guys, you Galatians, your biggest issue is your goodness. Your goodness is keeping you farther away from God than your sin. Because you think Jesus plus your goodness will make you acceptable to God. I've read for you before, but I, I always need to keep reading it myself. John Gerstner's quote, he said, what has come with Christ is that all that can keep you from God is your good works. Nothing else can hinder you. Nothing can keep you from Christ but the delusion that you have any good works of your own that can justify you and satisfy God. He said, all you need is need. He says, but alas, sinners can never part with their virtues. You know, I mean, the Pharisees, I mean, the people who are the very party that these false teachers came from, they repented of their sins. But Paul says the difference is Christians repent of our sins, but we also repent of, of our righteousness. That, that your, your goodness cannot make you more acceptable to God. I mean, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Part of where that shows up is, you know, when, when the wheels fall off in your life and that little voice starts talking to you in the back and says, God's mad at you. Or first you ask the question, after all I've done for you, God, could you let that happen to me? What does that mean? It tells you my goodness is what made you acceptable. So since I've been so good, why could you let those things happen, right? I mean, there's what comes out of our mouth and what we want to think we believe, but we find in those really hard times when we're in pain or we're in darkness, we're really scared, we're in those shadowy moments that we start to revert or resort to, well, I hope what I did was good enough to coerce God to treat me right or to rescue me from this. Does that make sense? That the, the thought that starts to go in there that when life is crashing around you, you start thinking, okay, God's letting me have it. He, he's, he's punishing me. And what Paul's saying is you can reject the thought. If, if you're in Christ, if you've received what he's done, the, the, the justification is, the, the word justification, Tim talked about this last week, you know, it's a legal term. It's the opposite of condemnation. It's, it's judicial, it's forensic, for all our lawyers out there uh, like that. It's, it, but you're declared not guilty by, by the judge, and you're treated with full rights, and it's, again, it's not because of your performance. It's because of Jesus' performance. You... This is going to sound crazy. Did you know that Paul teaches, Christianity teaches, you are saved by works. It's just you can't be saved by your works. 
You're saved by Jesus' works. So work matters. God cares about your record. It's just it, it, about the record that you're, you're, you're carrying. But if you're carrying your record, if I'm carrying my record, it's toast. Guess what? I don't get any bonus points for being a pastor, for studying God's Bible every day. And Margaret and I have a little joke that we you pull in a parking lot and see a parking place up close, you know, we'll pull in there and say, oh, clean living, paid. I went to church today. <laughs> of course, I work here, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> it's really got nothing to do with that. It's totally a joke because, you know, the goodness from God is, is a gift. It's, it's his grace. Jesus' works included that he took my punishment that his work like we've been singing about on the cross was that he took your punishment he took the curse of the law and so because he took the punishment he took all the punishment so how much punishment is left for me to receive from God for my sins zero ain't none left so you can always erase the interpretation that says God is punishing me. God may be disciplining you because he loves you, but he's not punishing you. He's not getting you back. He's not taking it out on you, ever. If anything, he's putting you in a hard spot to wake you up so you'll turn back to him, but, he, but it's not punishment. That's love. He's can't win you back. And so that's how we're in communion with God, that even if you've, if you've trusted Christ that because of Jesus' works, what he did, and uh, what, what he did as far as that he did keep God's commands, he did, all, he did love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. He loved his neighbor, even, even when it cost him dearly. But, but he also took our punishment, our curse in our place. Uh, Ritterboss says that the communion we have with God is first of all a communion in death. And you see this, of course, in that famous verse, 20 to Galatians 2:20, where it says, "I'm crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live. It, it's a, that Christ was under the curse of the law, but He did that so we're freed from the curse. The curse is when you sin, and you know in the back of your conscience when you sin, you're cut off from God. That curse is gone because you're no longer cut cut off from Him. So when we come to the supper, when, when you eat the bread and you drink the Cup, remember the promise is that we proclaim the death of Christ. And so what you're saying is, I have been crucified in Christ. When you eat that, when you eat that bread and drink that juice today, you're saying, he died, therefore I died, my sins are dead, the curse is dead, so now I have life in him. That we, we have life through him, we're freed from the curse of our failure and the implications of what that means behind God. But he doesn't just show us how we have communion with God through justification by faith. He also shows us practically how that spills over to our communion with each other. And I want to be real specific and concrete about this today with some application. It's, it's how the gospel changes racism. That, you know, Paul's purpose when he's talking to Peter in this passage, it wasn't to slam Peter. He wasn't trying to prop himself up. He was trying to say, look, those false teachers are alleging that I'm beneath the Jerusalem apostles, and therefore the message I'm preaching of acceptance by faith in Christ alone is inadequate. But actually, guess what? There was actually a time where I lovingly had to rebuke one of those Jerusalem apostles. 
So obviously I'm not beneath them. We're, we're, we're equals. But he wasn't saying that to tear down the apostles. He was saying that about the false, because the false teachers were alleging wrongly. So that was Paul's purpose in this point. But something that's a real clear implication of what's going on here because of the actual context, the situation in which Paul did that, is that Paul is showing that racism is a sin that cuts deeply against the gospel. Okay, it's not some list of things to do. It's, it cuts at the heart of the gospel. Paul says that Peter's problem, and everybody who followed along with what Peter was doing, because he said Peter did it, so everybody followed him. He said it was hypocrisy. He, his, his living, what he was doing, didn't correspond with what he was preaching, what he, what he believed. Here, here's, here's how it arose. See, in the Old Testament, God established for his people, for, for the Jews, cleanliness laws. And, it was, and what he wanted to do is he was trying to show them that you can't just bop into God's presence any old time you want because God is holy. He's righteous. And he can't even stand in the presence of sin. And so you need to have purity of heart for your worship to be accepted. Accepted. You know, sometimes we think worship's about what do I go and get out of it. We don't come to worship for us first. You come to worship, first of all, because we're coming to thank God for what he's done for us for the week. Right? It's, it's, it, the worship is about the God you're coming to bow down to. The bonus is he gives us good news. He says... You know what glorifies me, you know what makes me look great is the fact that I love you. Not just the way you are, I love you in spite of the way you are because of what my son Jesus did. So we, we do walk away restored and uplifted and, and, and healed. But the worship is about God first. And so in order to train his people how he required pureness of, of heart and, and, and conduct, he gave them the, these laws and through Moses... He gave them laws upon laws and, and lists of unclean items, unclean foods, unclean practices. Now, unclean didn't necessarily mean sinful. And it didn't mean dirty, like you need detergent or soap to wipe it off when it talked about unclean. But it was, it was a term that basically meant you were disqualified from being able to come before God at that moment unless you went through the, the cleanliness um, procedures, the rites that he gave them. Well... By definition, the Gentiles, because they didn't have the law and they didn't know the law, guess what? They were unclean because they were doing unclean stuff and touching unclean stuff all the time. And so the Pharisees added to God's law to say that Jews shouldn't have anything to do with Gentiles because if you come near the Gentiles or spend time with the Gentiles or touch a Gentile or eat with a Gentile, you'll become unclean. You with me? So there's this presumption that being clean and acceptable and justified before God was controlled by our behavior. And so you can understand how this aversion to the Gentiles set in. And eventually it evolved into a racism. It was, it was a racial issue. You're, you're either a, I mean, the whole world was you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Now, because when I say racism, what I mean is the sense that we're a superior people. And so we need to stand away from them. It's about a superiority how we operate. Well, last week, you know, Tim mentioned that after Jesus ascended to heaven, how, how God gave a vision to Peter. Remember, he gave him the picture of the, the, the blanket or sheet coming down out of heaven with all the animals, and Peter recoiled because there's all the unclean animals, and God said to him, Jesus said, 
these foods are no longer unclean. God did that three times because he didn't want to leave any doubt in Peter's mind that it was his imagination that eating with a Gentile would no longer make you unclean. And then he sent a Gentile to come and talk to him and to receive Jesus and to realize he received Jesus and the Holy Spirit just like we did. And yet he's a Gentile, so I guess God's okay with it. God had to break that because that was so deeply embedded in his, in his people's minds. Now, were, were the foods no longer unclean because God was not holy anymore? Of course not. God's still holy. Were, were they unclean because God doesn't care about sin? Obviously not. I mean, God can't stand the presence of sin. The reason the foods were no longer clean is because unclean was because Jesus made us clean. Remember, Jesus says, you don't become clean or unclean by what goes into you. He says, you're clean or unclean because of what comes out of you. In other words, it's what's on the inside that's clean or unclean. It's, it's not about the external. All God, see, God gave all those laws. Those were God's laws, but he gave them as a picture to prepare them for Jesus. And now that Jesus had come, he didn't need the picture anymore because he had the real thing. Are you with me? So, this, but, so Peter, if anybody should have known better, that, that, that's why in light of what God showed him in those visions, Peter's unwillingness to now eat with these Gentiles because he was afraid of what, what the, um, the real kind of right-wing Christian, uh, Christians from, from Jerusalem were telling him was basically this nonverbal statement that, well, Jesus didn't really make you clean. We're clean, but he didn't make you guys that clean. Right? And that's what sent Paul through the roof. Paul's like, are you kidding me? What happened to the gospel you were preaching, Peter? And so, you know, he was acting like the gospel didn't really apply, didn't really mean what he said it meant. That these divisions were still there. He was denying the gospel and what he was saying. You know, Peter, should, Peter knew better. And that's why, that's why Paul called him out because this was a, this was a statement to everybody in the room. And you could tell it was a statement because all, all the other kind of you know, junior leaders, if you will, followed, did what Peter did. Even Barnabas. Paul's like, Barnabas, come on. See, in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, sharing a meal to, to sup with somebody was a lot more significant than it is in our Western culture. That it, it, it indicated, it was a statement of not only of, of, of welcoming, of hospitality, but of unity. That's why, you know, in Revelation 3, when, when Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what does he say? I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. That's why that's important. It's not like, oh, Jesus came over to my house. No, it, it's Jesus is saying, I mean, that's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. This is God inviting you to his meal. It's God carrying out what Jesus said in Revelation 3.20. That God's invitation says you're in with him. You're in the inner circle. You're in his family. You're welcome. You're part of him. You're connected to Jesus. If you take that meal 
and you eat of it. It's, to eat of it is to say, I believe that what Jesus did accomplished the fact that I can have, I have that close communion with God. It's not based on how I behaved this week. It's based on what Jesus did, how, Je how Jesus behaved this week. How was Jesus this week? Pretty good? You think? That's, that's your label. That's your record. So when you go before God, it's, do you believe you go on the, on the basis of, of what Jesus has, has done? And, and to, to refuse a meal with somebody was utter personal rejection. So that's why what happened in this, on this occasion that Paul's telling about with Peter was so important. And so what it means is, you know, for us Christians too. Our rejection of other people as unclean is a repudiation of the gospel, just like it was for Peter and those folks. It's, it's, it's hypocrisy. It's proclaiming an alternative gospel. Now, what makes it tricky and what makes it prevalent is that, guess what? Every culture on earth in all of history, there have been lines drawn where there are certain other people that aren't us. Right? Always. It's never not been that way. And what Paul shows us here that what drives the divisions from a gospel standpoint as believers is a spirit, the spiritual root of racism, which is cultural pride. That, that racism or any other dividing wall we use is, is continuing a works righteousness. That's why it's a sin. It's because it cuts against the gospel. It's a, it's a works righteousness that says, I found an area of my life where I'm cleaner than somebody else and it makes me feel superior. That's why racism is a sin. Does that make sense? It's about the God. It's, it's about what am I standing on? If I'm looking down on somebody for whatever reason, then it cuts against me really understanding what the gospel means for me. If, I mean, from a biblical perspective, there's one race. Humans made in God's image. There's one. But in every ethnic culture, there, you know, there's different cultural emphases, right? And when your ethnic culture group is in the majority, it's, it's easy to slip into thinking that our practices, our cultural practices are normal. That's what's normal. That's what's right. What everybody ought to be doing. Because that's, that's what we see the majority of the people around us doing. It's kind of the accepted practices. And it's, it's a challenge it, you know, it just, it, it feels right. And, there, and there's a sense of this cultural superiority, which you feel like if you come in on the other side, if you're, if you're in the minority, if you ever, you've probably had situations for, in some kind of situation where you were actually in the minority in a situation, and you know the discomfort of not knowing the rules or feeling like you're not on the end. And it might not even be ethnically. It might be in other kind of situations. I mean, some of you ladies have experienced, you walk in, there's, there's you know, a group gathering, there's a whole bunch of men, and, and it's like you, or maybe, you know, two women, and, you feel, and it's pretty clear who, who's kind of got the dominant hand, or vice versa. That the, and, and again, what, what's tricky is the, as the minority, you can just as easily fall into the same sense of superiority because you want to pump your ego up. And the, but the gospel cuts against the grain of both. So whether I'm in, and here, here's how you plug in what Paul says here. Whether I'm in the advantage position, like the Jewish Christians were, the Jewish Christians, they had the law. They knew all the cleanliness stuff. 
God had given that to them as a gift. Or whether you don't have it, either one, it, 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 it doesn't matter because what makes you acceptable to God isn't that you know when you do the cleanliness laws. It's receiving Jesus. It's faith in what Jesus has done. And so it, it always begins by owning your uncleanness, right? Or that as a Christian, well, that's why that's, that, you may have thought that confession of sin was kind of a little heavy, a little dark. You know, if I, if I own that every day, what I said in that confession of sin, that'll help to undercut my temptation to be looking down on somebody, whether it's for a racial issue, whether it's because, you know, they're a Methodist, you know, or, <laughs> or whether it's because, you know, they went to Carolina or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, whether they're a Patriots fan, you know, whatever it may be you look down on somebody for. <laughs> you know, we have all sorts of lines that we draw. I mean, you may be in the bottom. I, I, I think I've shared, I'm sure I've shared before. When I was first in the ministry, and so obviously we didn't have a lot, I, it was the early 90s. I was driving a, a 1974 AMC Gremlin, uh, which, <laughs> of course, was touted by Wall Street Journal as one of the five ugliest cars in history. And uh, so it was still 17 years old at that point. And, um, and I was... I was on staff at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, which is, there were four medical centers in Jackson, and about half the doctors went to that church, and about half the lawyers in town went to that church. I mean, it was very, very highbrow. They, folks loved Jesus, but it was nonetheless, culturally, it was just a very, very highbrow, wealthy place. And so I'd go pulling in the, in the parking lot in my gremlin, and usually I had a hole in the muffler, so it looked like it sounded, or it sounded like it looked <laughs> as bad. And, and yet, you know, kind of to overcome my, my feeling out of, out of the, the highbrow part, I would pull in there and I would kind of get puffed up and say, I don't need one of those Mercedes. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable being in my, in my gremlin <laughs> with my windows rolled down because I've got vinyl seats. And it's real hot in Mississippi. And my air conditioning doesn't work. <laughs> but... I was looking down on them, you know, it, more, as snooty as I suspected they were probably looking down on me, right? So you don't have, you, you could be in a majority culture and be causing this, living out this sin that we're talking about, or you may be in a minority culture and doing the exact same sin for, diff, you know, for a different reason, to protect your ego. Does that make sense? The beauty is the gospel, what Jesus has done for that, undercuts both. And God's always called his people to use the gospel against racism. Remember when he told the Israelites in Deuteronomy? He says, show your love for the alien. These are all the non-Jews. Why? Because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Remember? I left you there for 400 years so you remember what it's like to be on the bottom of the pile. So when you see people who are on the bottom of the pile and they come into your majority culture situation... You don't treat them like trash. See, that's gospel motivation. So this, this isn't new with Jesus. The gospel started way early. I mean, this, this is part of why I'm excited about our English classes that we have here. The, you know, it's an opportunity not only to, to help with, with the real need of learning the language, but it's, it's about building friendships. Uh, 
helping folks from other countries and cultures feel at home here. I mean, it's, there, there's lots of laughter that goes on on Tuesday nights over here. Now, it can be tricky because it can be easy to feel like, well, we're the ones who are right, so we're bringing them in so we can straighten them out and make them like us. That's what we have to be careful of as, as we're serving folks from other cultures. We, we want to thank the Lord and, and honor and respect the cultures that folks are bringing in and not feel like we're, we are merely serving these poor people. Because again, can you see how, I mean, it's, it's so subtle how it works. And I know my heart, you know, goes there just like that. But it, but it goes, you know, it, it can be socioeconomic, like I said, with the gremlin. I mean, we've got a huge, you may have noticed, a, bit, a bitter political divide in our country. You know, it, it's a chasm. You know, and as Christians, you should be part of the political process. If you wash your hands of someone because they, who they vote for, you're repudiating the gospel. I mean, doesn't the phrase washing your hands of somebody indicate they're unclean, right? The, you know, do we push away and recoil or do we, do we draw near to people who, who really differ from us with caring love to listen? That's hard. That's, that's laying down our lives. That's what makes us, that's a part of how God works to make us more like Jesus. Just in, in wrapping up, kind of moving away from the political divide, you know, like, like Peter, we, we might sort of sit by the other people, maybe even in church, but we're not going to eat with them, really become friends. Because that's part, that's what Paul's talking about here. That, that, you know, you might keep relationships formal and official, but you're not going to break bread and in, include people in your circles. It's beginning to cross those boundaries. In, in Romans 15, Paul writes to this church in Rome, which had a strong group of Jewish Christians and a strong group of Gentile Christians that were in there, and you can tell through the whole letter that there's issues because he keeps addressing, not you know, considering other people more important to yourselves. Don't be all full of yourself. And he'll he'll go hard at the Jewish Christians, then he goes hard at the Gentile Christians, basically saying to both of them, "Don't get all puffed up with yourself." But then he says, in verse in chapter 15, verse 7, "Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you." That's gospel motivated. As Christ has welcomed you, the word "welcome" literally means accept into your circle, receive into your circle. It's not just stand at the door and shake somebody's hand. It's bring him in, in into your life, into your world. Uh, I do want to mention one thing that I'm excited about and part of our, our presbytery, which is kind of the regional group of churches. We actually met yesterday. Uh, it goes from Williamsburg to Elizabeth City. We're going to be holding a conference called Race in the Church. You might see the announcement about it in the bulletin. And it's actually going to be hosted. We're going to host it here at New Covenant because we're kind of geographically central on April 6th. Just talk about you know, what, what exactly are these issues? How does the gospel help us uh, break down some of these barriers? Well, I want to wrap up now. We're going to go to the communion table. It's communing with God, where he accepts us into his inner circle, and it also helps propel us out from here to commune with one another, accept one another into our circle. So let's pray and ask Jesus to make these things real in our lives. Father, Peter, who walked with you, who knew you, who loved you, was prone to fall and slip and, and forget the gospel. And so we know we're not, we're, we're, we're going to do the same thing. 
You may even have shown us areas this morning as we sat here and reflected that, that, that we, we've forgotten the gospel. Uh, we will probably every day be hypocritical in ways that we function. We thank you that you don't receive us because of our hypocrisy or lack thereof, but because of what Jesus did. Help us stand in that and believe in that and really live like that is true. We pray as we go to the table that you will use it as a means of grace. Remind us that our record, our superiority, our lack of superiority died with Jesus. There's no curse that we have been made new, we've been received, we've been accepted so that we can be acceptors and receivers uh, and lovers as you have been with us. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.